0: Good morning. Good morning. Hey. It's good to be back with you. It seems like it's been a long time since I've been here. There's a number of new faces. That's good. I'm going to ask you, every, every time I get a chance to share from the Word of God, I always start with this question. I'm over at Maple Root Baptist Church most Sunday mornings, um, but I always ask them this question, are you reading your Bible? And so now they always say yes. A lot of people say yes. But here's a, a second question that's actually more important than that one. Are you studying your Bible? If you're serious about your walk with God, then I encourage you, exhort you to study your Bible. We have the revealed Word of God at our disposal, it's easy to access. If the Bible is to be your standard for living, you need to read it for yourself, you need to study it for yourself. A lot of time, you know, we have access to a lot of books about the Bible, devotionals. There are nothing wrong with those. Um, we hear lots of people stand up on platforms like this and teach about the Bible. Um, I don't want you to judge the Bible based on what you read or what you hear. Judge the things you read and hear based on what the Bible says. So I encourage you to be in it for yourself. When we read it with the goal of understanding it and living it, we're after two things fundamentally, really an understanding of its original meaning and its original context. It was written at a certain point in history. Now, of course, the Word of God is eternal, so it also has a present-day application. It's always applicable. But sometimes we can misapply it if we don't go back first and find out why was it written in the first place? To whom was it written? What was God's purpose in doing that? And then we can build a bridge between the original context, the original intent, and the present-day application. So with that in mind, I invite you to turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 3. I'm kind of just randomly going into the middle of this long letter, probably the most systematic statement of theology in the entire Bible. The Apostle Paul was writing to the people in Rome. He was longing to go see them. And so he wanted to write to this cosmopolitan city and share with them the truth of The Gospel of God. We've been doing a series through the Book of Romans at Maple Root Baptist, and so I want to share these thoughts with you this morning. Um, It's an interesting uh, letter. Um, As I say, it's this comprehensive statement of systematic theology. But we read it today. We have chapter and verse. So I say go to Romans chapter 3, and so we go to that spot that's marked there. But when it was written, there were no chapters or verse numbers there. Um, It was just a long letter that people received and, and they read through. So we're in the first third of the letter, the part that we're looking at this morning. Of course, the chapters and verses were added later throughout the Bible, and those are handy for us because they give us a reference so we can do what we're doing this morning. This is really, you know, when we say you know, chapter 3, we kind of read it as distinct from chapter 2 or distinct from chapter 4, but this was a long, continuous stream of thought. And so we're picking it up after he already started and before what he's going to say. And so that's the context at which we're looking at it this morning. So a little background on the first two chapters. Uh, in summary, basically, in a nutshell... Paul used chapter 1 of Romans, what we now call chapter 1, the very beginning of the letter, to establish the unrighteousness of the non-Jewish people. Everybody on the planet who was not Jewish, the Gentiles, uh, were unrighteous. That's that's basically his his, um, position there. Um, They're sinful. And then chapter 2, because the Jews are feeling pretty good by the time they got to the end of chapter 1, he used chapter 2, what we now call chapter 2, to establish the unrighteousness or the sinfulness of the Jewish people. So by the time you get to where we are, both Jew and Gentile alike are in the same boat, separated from God by sin. And that's where we pick up his argument here in Romans chapter 3. Paul is writing this letter as though he's debating an imaginary opponent. So he's anticipating objections, and then he's answering those objections um, as though they were actually being asked to him. Many Jews at that time felt that they had an in with God just because they were Jewish. Their religious heritage and their religious affiliation made them safe with God, so to speak. And they felt religiously superior to the non-Jews. While others may have deserved judgment, they would not incur God's wrath because they had the favor of God. After all, they were the chosen people. Now, I'm going to jump forward to present day. Sometimes it's it's possible, is it not, for those of us who are regular churchgoers, we call ourselves Christians, Um, maybe you grew up in a Christian family, to kind of feel that same way. My churchianity has given me an in with God. I have the favor of God. Well, after all, I've been going to church all this time. It's easy to sometimes feel that way. But Paul ends chapter 2. If you look at verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2, he says, A man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly. And you could say the same thing today about Christian. A person is not a Christian if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. Now circumcision, of course, we have to go back to, you know, why would he say that? Circumcision was the sign, right, given to Abraham. Here's an interesting question. When did circumcision come? After his faith or before his faith? Came after his faith, that's right. He was, his, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And then circumcision was given as the sign of the covenant that God made with him. And so circumcision in and of itself didn't have value, didn't make somebody acceptable to God. It was the sign of the covenant of faith. So he says in verse 29, No, a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart. That's really what God's after. Where is our heart toward Him? Where are we at our heart? You heard that in in worship this morning. And this sets the stage for Paul's hypothetical question posed in the first verse of chapter 3. What advantage, then, is there to being a Jew? See, because he says, basically, you know, you're in the same boat as the non-Jews. You're all in need of God. You're all sinners, So they say, he anticipates they might ask, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? or What value is there in circumcision? You see his answer? Much in every way. First of all, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. The Jews had the privilege, not of religious superiority that made them favored and accepted by God, but of having been the recipients and the carriers of his very promises. The recipients and the carriers of his written revelation about himself. See, like today's churchgoer, or the person raised in a Christian home today, we have the advantage of having a written revelation of God at our disposal. We claim it to be the guide to our lives. And what does it tell us about God? So very important, the Bible tells us about God. So you go out on the street and just go up to people and and ask them, who is God? What's God like? What are God's attributes? What are God's characteristics? You get all kinds of things. If you go to the Bible, what does the Bible tell you about God? When God reveals himself, who is God? The Bible tells us that God is the all-powerful creator, the sustainer of the universe. The Bible reveals that God is perfect in holiness and perfect in righteousness and perfect in love and justice and wisdom. God is way, 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 way up here. Way up here. And how do we compare? How do I compare? in power and position to Almighty God. Way, 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 way down here. So far down, you got to look up to see bottom. So far down, you got to climb a ladder to scratch an ant's belly. That's how far down. You get the picture. See, we learn from Scripture that there's an infinite gulf Between righteous God and sinful man. The God of Scripture is majestic and transcendent. Beyond human comprehension. We need to see God that way. He's awesome. Sometimes we toss that word around like, This cookie was awesome. I heard a pastor say once, a word like that, we should reserve for God. If God is awesome, nothing else is. God is awesome. You can still say your cookie was awesome. It's okay. But but think of it. You're not saying the same thing, though, are you, when you say God is awesome. God is holy and righteous. And we have no option but to fall on our faces in front of him. If God was here like he came and appeared to Moses, we would fall on our faces because of his holiness and his awesomeness. But see, without the written word revealing the infinite gulf between his holiness and our sin, what do we tend to do? We tend to bring God down to our level, don't we? We can see it in the films that we create. In the books that we write, we describe God as though he has foibles and moods and frustrations and whims, just like we do. We see him as our co-pilot, as though we're in a position to call the shots, and he's just along for the ride in case we need his help. Without the word, we tend to create an image of God as a quirky, even senile, old man. But we give him the benefit of the doubt that he's also a benevolent, understanding, kind old gentleman. Isn't that how he's depicted in movies sometimes? Jesus is just all right, informal and irreverent perspective on awesome, holy God. See, and Paul is saying here part of what the message is that he's trying to get uh, through to us here is that God is awesome, and we're in great need. So far in his letter up to this point, Paul's identified three proofs of the world's guilt before God. So it says, men are without excuse, says that in Romans 1. And he wrote there to the pagan, to the unbeliever, who never had access to the word of God. That they're without excuse when it comes to knowing whether God exists or not. That God's, God's eternal existence is demonstrated day in and day out by nature. Day after day, nature pours forth speech. Night after night, it displays knowledge of the existence of God. So, even an unbeliever can't deny the existence of God. To the moralist, and today we might call that person a progressive, who doesn't believe there's a God. To the moralist, the witness of conscience, conscience establishes God's morality. See, we know that murder is wrong, rape is wrong, and stealing is wrong. We don't have to have the Bible to tell us those things. It's written in our heart. Every person in every society knows those things are wrong. So to the moralist, God's morality is Clear, even though they don't believe in God. But to the Jew, and today we say to the Christian, the witness of Scripture testifies beyond that. It testifies to our sin separation from God. You see, having the Word is of great advantage because it yields the most important information about God. It yields the most information about God. Nature tells us God exists but it doesn't tell us that we're hopelessly lost, does it? Conscience reveals God's morality, but it doesn't tell us that we're hopelessly lost. God's Word tells us God exists, tells us God is moral, but it does more. It reveals clearly that we're helpless to make it on our own. Now, wouldn't it be nice if Paul could just end the letter there and everybody would repent? Repent but he anticipates that that's not the reaction that he's going to get. Paul anticipates an objection to his argument that at that time the Jews had a great advantage because they were the carriers of the very word of God. They were the recipients of God's uh, revelation. They'd been entrusted, it says, with the very words of God. But in verse 3, you can see the objection. He voices it. What if some did not have faith? Will their faith nullify God's faithfulness? In other words... How can you argue that we're privileged to have the Word, yet we're found guilty of not obeying it? Does that mean the Word is powerless? If the Word was so powerful, why wouldn't it just convict us and we'd change? And Paul says, not at all. That doesn't show a uh, weakness in God's Word, not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. That's what he wrote. And then he quotes from Psalm 51, the end of verse 4. He says, as it is written, so they may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But do you know what verses come before that in Psalm 51? Psalm 51 starts like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression, my sin is always before you. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Then it says, so that you may be proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Who wrote that? Yeah. When did he write it? Yeah, when he had been confronted by the prophet Nathan about his sin. And he testified that God was righteous and God was justified in his judgment. And right when he spoke. And that's the point that Paul is making. Let God be true and every man a liar. Then we get another anticipated objection in verses 5 through 8. Essentially, this argument is, why why should I be under God's judgment or God's wrath if my sin actually makes God's righteousness more evident and brings Him more glory? See what these verses say? If our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing His wrath on us? Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? But look at verse 7. Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases His glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? You jump down to the end of verse 8. People were coming to the conclusion, let us do evil that good may result. So should the sinner be excused, even thanked by God? Were it not for our sin, we'd never know His mercy. Paul's anticipating that. If, if our being bad makes God look good, then we'll be bad, so he looks good. Some people rationalize their sin away in that silly way. But Paul has a warning that that's just evidence of an unrepentant heart. And he says at the end there, their condemnation is deserved. But I was reading that and thinking about my own relationships and my own uh, uh, walk and, and, and work in this life. Then it made me, made me want to ask you this question. How In general, how do you describe people? Um, are they inherently good or inherently evil? Are they basically good? Are people basically good? Now, most people that you ask would probably say that even though sometimes people do bad things, most people are basically good or inherently good. That's what we want to believe, isn't it? We're just good people who sometimes do bad things. That's not what the Bible says. You see verse 9 here in Romans 3, the second half of verse 9, Paul comes to a conclusion. Now he's about, you know, as I say, getting near a third of the way through his letter. And he comes to a conclusion. And he says, no one's any better than anyone else We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all, look at what it says there, they're under sin. See, he doesn't say we sometimes commit sins or sometimes we act sinfully, it says we're under sin. That means we're under the power of sin or under the dominion of sin, that sin is our nature. And if you go on and get into chapter 5, the second half of chapter 5, starting with verse 12, it talks about our solidarity with Adam, that we inherited a sin nature from Adam. And we've proved the fact that we have that sin nature because we all sin. We don't get a sin nature when we first sin. We're born with a sin nature. That's what we inherited from Adam. And we prove the fact that we have it when we do sin. We're under sin. That's what the Scripture says. And to, to make this point, without a doubt, look at verses 10 through 18. Paul quotes eight Old Testament passages which collectively make 14, 14 sweeping statements about man's depravity. They're damning, devastating accusations describing our character, our conduct, and the cause of our sin. See, so look around. Is the world getting better or worse? Are we marching on our way toward utopia? We think we are. We want to be. But no matter what we've done, we've had great prosperity. There's been great, God has enabled mankind to accomplish great things. President Kennedy stood at Rice University in the early 60s and said, we choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon not because it's easy but because it's hard. And less than 10 years later we walked on the moon. God's given us great abilities. But are we marching to utopia? No, look at the news. Look at the craziness. That's what the Bible's talking about. Look at these verses that he quotes. From the first three here, verses 10 through 12, they're quoted from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. So Scripture repeats it um, because it, it wants us to understand this is the reality. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. No one righteous, no one who seeks God, no one who does good. You may read those verses and say, what are you talking about? I know plenty of people who do good. See, these verses aren't saying that we never do good things. It's saying, it's pointing out that we don't do them persistently or profoundly, that in fact we're not inherently good. We're under sin. We don't inherently seek God. We've all turned away. That's what Isaiah said, right? All we like sheep have turned away. We've gone astray. We've turned to our own way. And then he starts talking about conduct in verse 13. Our speech and our communication are corrupt. Verse 13, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. And we're perpetually in conflict and at war. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and a way of peace they do not know. See, it's characteristic of us to have verbal outbursts and respond many times in a rush to violence. According to Will Durant, who wrote Lessons from History, in the last 3,421 years of recorded human history, only 268 have seen no war. You know, that's 8% of the time there's been no war. 8% of the time, peace. 93% of the time, conflict. All we are saying is give peace a chance. But all we're doing is rushing to war. Why? Because to a man, to a person, we're under sin. And see verse 18? There's no fear of God before their eyes. As a society, we have no fear of God, do we? There's no fear of God. These are hard words to accept. But unless we accept them, we can't be made right with God. Unless we understand who we are before God in relationship to who He is. See, and what this tells us is that we're helpless. It tells us that we're helpless to achieve status with God that makes us acceptable to Him. That's what it tells us. Paul spent the first third of this letter telling us, you cannot do it on your own. You can't. You're helpless. I serve as a chapel leader for a minor league baseball team, and so over the course of the summer, I get to spend a lot of time with ball players. and I don't use a lot of baseball analogies, but one of the ones that I use occasionally to help people understand this concept is batting average. If you bat one time and get a hit, and that's the only time you ever bat it, what's your batting average? You're batting 1,000. Right? Is any, has any major leaguer, has any baseball player ever batted 1,000? No. You know why? Because if you make one out, if you make one out, right, then you're not batting 1,000 anymore. And if you get nothing but hits for the rest of your life, are you ever going to bat 1,000 again? No, you can't. And that's how it is. We, when, when we fail, God is righteous, totally righteous. When we fail at any point in honoring or keeping his commandments, then we failed. You can't get back. You can't once you're not perfect you can't get back. And I can speak for myself. I don't have to read much of scripture before I go, "Uh-oh. Uh-oh, I'm in trouble." Forget batting a thousand. I'd be struggling to reach the Mendoza line for those of you who know baseball. The, the privilege of having the Word of God is it tells it like it is. It condemns us. It tells us that we're helpless, but it also tells us something else. We're not hopeless. We're only helpless, not hopeless. See, we're, if you try to be good enough, and we have this very um, unfortunate philosophy uh, pervasive in, uh, among us that, that says, if I'm relatively good, I have many friends who say, look I, I'm probably good enough. God, God will weigh me in the balance. and uh, you know, When he counts all the things together, I'll probably be good enough to get in. That's not how it works. Right? Relative goodness doesn't cut it. God is holy. God is righteous. God is pure. And it says in verse 20, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. No one. How many? No one. Now maybe you, if it were possible to to completely obey everything God commands, could you be made righteous on that basis? Yes. But can anybody do it? No. Has anybody done it? No. So it says no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. Rather, the law does what? Makes us conscious of our sin. I read the, I don't forget all the law, just the Ten Commandments. You know, I, I'm already a liar, stealing, thieving, adulterer. That's bad. Right? Jesus said, if you just think about it, you may as well have done it. So I see this and I say, yes, I agree, I'm helpless. And so, if you believe that God exists, and you find yourself in a helpless state before Him, then you become desperate for release from the penalty of sin. Because what does the Bible say the penalty for sin is? Yeah, Yeah, Separation from God. Eternal separation from God. Death. The wages of sin. He gets to the end of chapter 6. The wages of sin is death. And that's what makes the rest of this chapter so exciting. Because here's where Paul introduces a righteousness that's from God. What he's concluded up to this point is that there's no no righteousness that comes from us. That we have no claim to acceptability before God. But there is a righteousness that comes from God. So we're not hopeless. See, these verses come right at the point of the great divide between God and man. And they reveal God's solution to the problem of man's radical inner corruption for which man on his own has no remedy. See, these are verses 21 through 31 here. These are verses to be studied diligently because they tell us that we can have a status change. We can go in God's eyes From condemned sinner under God's wrath to righteous child of God. Not because we can do anything to earn it or achieve it, but because God's loving provision described in these verses makes it possible. Let's take a look at a few of these verses. Now it says in verse 21, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. And these actually are the things that the law and the prophets testify to. So if you read the scripture, if you study the Bible, where will it lead you? It will lead you right to here. A righteousness from God. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. How many people are eligible? All. See, all is a very important word here. All of it's from God. None of it's from us. All of it's from God. It doesn't come from your church. It doesn't come from your relationships. It doesn't come from how much you earn. It doesn't come from any, any deeds you did. It all comes from God and and it's available to all because everyone is eligible because all have sinned and all fall short. That's what verse 23 says, the verse many of us know. All all fail, all fall short. God does it all and it's available to all of us. There's nothing you can... I had a friend once tell me, you know, I I believe what you're saying but uh, God's not going to forgive me because I'm too bad. I said, it's impossible. You can't be too bad. Look at the record of Scripture. God forgives everything, anything, for everyone if we come to Him on His terms through faith in Jesus Christ. Why does He do that? See, look at verse 25. Yes, that's true, and we're going to get to that. But look at verse 25. First talk about how God did it. Verse 25, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, and this is a a very important point in this letter. See, Jesus, in his sacrificial death, he fully satisfied God's justice. It's true, as Tanisha said, God loves us. But God loves us doesn't equal God excuses our sin, because God is just, and he's holy, and he's righteous. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement, it says, or propitiation. And technically, that means that in his sacrificial death, Jesus did indeed satisfy the justice of God. That is, God's wrath for our sin, God's wrath for my sin, was fully met, fully executed on Jesus in his suffering and crucifixion. God did not, does not, will not, cannot, just excuse sin. He can't and he won't just wink and say, ain't no big thing, brother. Because it is a big thing. And the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. See, God doesn't say, ain't no big deal, brother. But his wrath is turned away from me it's turned away from you as you place your faith in Christ and it's turned on to Jesus because Jesus, the white righteous one, stood in for us. You see, he came because he loved us. God came to earth himself as Jesus and he lived a perfect life, completely fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law of God. He's the only one who ever did. He's the only one, the only human being of which the words in verses 10 through 18 here don't apply. Because he was not under sin. He was totally righteous before God and therefore he could volunteer to pay for me and to pay for you with his life. Isn't it amazing? The only one who didn't deserve the wrath took the wrath that we might live. Because Jesus lived a righteous life, our sins could be imputed to him and taken off of us. The Bible says reckoned. Sometimes the word gets, gets translated reckoned or credited. Our sins were taken off. It's like an accounting term. They were removed from our account and put on his account. They were credited to him. Taken away from us. They were imputed to him. But more than that, it's more than that. Because Jesus lived a righteous life and then he fully paid the penalty for our sin in his death and he rose victorious over sin and death, his righteousness is imputed to us. See, you could ask the question, if all Jesus did was save us from our sins, then he could have just shown up on Good Friday. Why was he here for 30 years before that, 33 years? Because he lived a righteous life. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of God. And in his death and resurrection, his righteousness, when we place our faith in him, his righteousness is imputed to us. So the status change is this. I go from sinner in God's sight to righteous child of God. Now, I'm not righteous. I I still fail and fall every day. But God sees me as righteous because of what Jesus did for me. And so my goal in life is to live toward that, live up to it. My sin was imputed on him and his righteousness was imputed to me. Same to you, by faith in his blood. Do you understand how great that is? Steve Jobs, who co-founded Apple, Long, long time ago when he was first introducing the first, one of the first Macintosh computers, he pointed to it and he said, this is insanely great. And maybe I'm, I like the technology and everything, and it's cool. But no, this is insanely great. It doesn't get greater than this. It's insanely great. It's a perfect description for what Jesus has done for us. And so Paul ends this chapter and we'll end today with, there, there's no room for boasting. Right? Because we can't earn it. But there's room for celebration, isn't there? There's room for gratitude, isn't there? And our lives should be characterized by gratitude. Mine's not enough. I'm preaching to me. Right? Because we should be filled with gratitude. Mark Farner, the lead singer of Grand Funk Railroad, he got saved and he was, you know, radical transformation in his life. And one of his first Christians out, Christian albums he put out, he had a song called Attitude of Gratitude. And it's an upbeat, course song. But I want to... Kind of share with you in closing a few lines from one of Bob Dylan's songs. Because when he was saved, he got into scripture. And you can see the reflection. It's almost like he read this chapter. He wrote a song on the album Saved called What Can I Do For You? It reflects the truth of what God has done for us and what our response should be to him. I'll just share one verse and a bit of the chorus soon. As a man is born, you know, the sparks begin to fly. He gets wise in his own eyes, and he's made to believe a lie. Who could deliver him from the death he's bound to die? Well, you've done it all, and there's no more anyone can pretend to do. What can I do for you? You've given all there is to give. What can I give for you? You've given me life to live. How can I live for you? And that's the question I encourage you to pray to the Lord this morning as you reflect upon how insanely great it is that he loved us enough to go to the cross, to make a way for us, that we might become righteous children of God in God's sight. And God will never leave us nor forsake us. And you know what Jesus is doing today? The Bible tells us. Tells us in Romans, in Romans 8, tells us he's interceding for us. In Hebrews 7, 25, says he lives to intercede for you. So there's a lot of things in life. Now I could tell you about my week and um, how I fell and, and, and how I struggled in, in um, frustration over the fact that I still have the propensity to sin despite the fact that I hate it. Mm-hmm. And so Satan would like us to get dragged down and, and, and hear him whisper in our ear, you're not worth it, he ain't going to forgive you this time. But he does. It's continuous. First John 1 John nine says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and he'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word cleanse, that, that word that gets translated cleanse, means ongoing washing. Right? And so I want to live in the gratitude that Bob Dylan expresses in this song. He's done everything for me. How can I live for him? Gave his life for me. How can I live for him? And that's what I encourage you this morning, to have that same prayer. Don't give up. Don't give up. Right? Because God never gives up on you. And Satan would like you, as a Christian, as a Christian, when you struggle with something, Satan would like to have you believe that you failed finally and you can't come back. Don't believe it. Right? Just keep kneeling down before the Lord and thanking Him that He's done it all for you. And then say, help me to live, the, help me to live up to the righteousness that you already see me with. Amen? Amen? Father in Heaven, we just thank You this morning for this opportunity to look briefly into Your Word. We just ask that You would help us to Uh, pursue you with all that we have and all that we are and we just thank you so much that you made a way a righteousness that came from you that you made a a provision for us that we might live with you eternally that we may be part of your kingdom plan we just pray that our lives would be not only evident of that but uh, we would live to just share that with our friends and our family members um, that we would encourage them to taste and see that the lord is good we just ask for your blessing upon each person here upon each family represented here and we just ask for Uh, your peace to be with us as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.